Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. This show is brought to you by Métis Nation BC and Jelly Marketing. Great to uh, meet you and have you on the show. Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about yourself? Well, Kansi Darian, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really exciting for me considering all of the illustrious people you've already had and already talked to. My name is Kaya Heitland. I live on Vancouver Island and I belong to the Couch and Valley Métis Nation. And I am the owner of Indigenous Nouveau. And that's my kind of my base company that I do all of my projects and all of my adventures are out of these days. That's really cool. And and so tell us about some of those projects that we would find under Indigenous Nouveau. The primary focus of my business, Indigenous Nouveau, is actually a fabric that I produce. I work with a company in Montreal. I produce beadwork print fabrics based on some traditional Métis designs, but mostly like my own contemporary explorations of my own lineage, my diverse lineage, using the language of beadwork. And all of the fabric that I produce is organic hemp and organic cotton. And it's manufactured in North America and it's all printed in Montreal. And I kind of started that aspect of my business because there was such a need for domestically made materials for indigenous made products. And that was a really driving force behind pretty much everything I do in Indigenous Nouveau is, is really about making indigenous products from indigenous materials. And, you know, the idea that an indigenous product really is only indigenous if it's made here, if it's from Turtle Island, if all the components are from here. And, you know, there's some give and take with, you know, thread and ribbons and things like that. But the more we can do to actually keep supporting production and manufacture of these products, even if they cost a little bit more, I think it's really important to put our energy into that. That's amazing. That's amazing. And under this umbrella as well, I understand you do some teaching too. I do. Yeah. So one half of Indigenous Nouveau with a fabric and my own beadwork and my own quilt work that I sell and I do seasonal sales of that traditional work. I teach quilt work and I teach beadwork classes. I write PDFs and I do online classes for both beadwork and quilt work. And I've been teaching quilt work classes actually within my own community, the Couch and Valley Métis Nation, since the fall. And we've been working on a couple of projects. We're starting up again in, in March here. And I'm pretty excited about that because we're working on a different project. And it's really been a huge, it's really been an amazing thing for me and myself, my own reclamation, my own investigation into my roots, because teaching other people really started to make me question, you know, my motivation behind what I do and my own teachings, whether they were familial teachings or community teachings, or whether they're from online or whether they were from books. And so it's really helped me to categorize my own knowledge 
when I had to present it to other people because, you know, there's a certain amount of accountability that you really have to present when you're teaching classes. There's protocol involved. There's elders to be consulted. There's fact-checking, you know, there's there's all these different things that when we're talking about teaching, skill sharing, land-based practices, and knowledge dissemination, um, protocol is really essential in that to, to have that ritual, to have that protective aspect of traditionalism, you know, that preserves and curates as well as shares. Amazing. Now, those that aren't familiar with the term or I mean, not the term, but what the art and act is, what is quill work? How does that work? Oh, I do traditional porcupine quill work. And it is an art form that's actually shared from the East Coast to the West Coast, wherever you find porcupines in traditional indigenous arts pre-contact. And we take porcupine quills and we soften them. And I actually put them in my mouth and I soften them with my saliva and then I flatten them with my teeth and then I stitch them down in an applique technique. So it's a little bit different than when you see them applied on boxes like the Mi'kmaq and other styles of quill work. But the applique itself, it's not even that difficult. You really just have to have a little bit of background in sewing. It takes a little bit of finagling, like getting the hand-eye coordination down, but it's very relaxing. It's very meditative. And I really believe that, you know, beadwork and quill work are really forms of medicine and reconnections. And that's kind of the whole point of these classes, right? Is to bring people in, give them a group that they can belong to and a method of study that focuses their search for self-reclamation and investigation into their own roots. So if I've got two daughters who are say six and eight years old and a 15 year old son that wants to learn quill work, where would they find such quills and how do they sign up to take this teaching? Through a couple of different avenues that I'm working on right now. So through Couch and Valley Métis Nation in particular, it is being funded by Allocative Arts Grant Program Funds. And then I just actually did another application for another quill work class through MMBC as a mentor program. So I'm going to be teaching another 10 students. The funds are being provided through MMBC. So those classes are going to be provided to the community free of cost. But right now I'm developing a couple of different PDFs where I'm actually going to be providing the kits, which I do for all of my classes. Everybody gets all the porcupine quills and all of the patterns and everything all ready to go. We just start on video and we open the kits and we get to talk about all the materials and everything right from the ground up. So with a quill work class, especially, I like to talk about, you know, the preparation and the dyeing of the quills because I also hand dye them all myself and sort them. The most common way to pick up porcupine quills now is actually to find them as roadkill. Yes, uh, it's not the most traditional way, but it's the best way to make use of animals that would have otherwise gone to waste that are casualties of the road. Porcupines are particularly drawn to mineral salts. And so, especially on the highways where they salt the roads, like in the spring when the melt comes, they like to come and lick all the salt off the side of the road. So they often get hit on the road and they're not very fast. So it's hard for them to avoid vehicles. Um, But that's one of my sources of quills, actually. So outside of a zoo, I've actually never seen a porcupine. So which maybe provinces or which areas in the provinces do you find the most porcupines or where where would one find one? Well, we don't have that many on this side of the Rocky Mountains. They are around. But if you go like pretty much east of the Rockies, you're going to find much larger populations. And in fact, part of the classes that I teach, I tell stories. I have a puppet. I have a porcupine puppet. His name is Kakwa, which is the Cree word for porcupine. And I tell stories like legends while doing the quill work. And I tell stories about why we find porcupine in the areas that we do, why porcupine has his quills and his relationship with beaver. Him and beaver have like this eons old rivalry. So there's actually a lot of stories from the Pacific Northwest. The Haida have a few 
stories that talk about porcupine and beaver being in this rivalry, which is why porcupine ends up like up in the mountains and beaver gets to stay in the in the lowlands. So we talk a little bit about that and, you know, have some real folklore to explain the geography of the animals themselves. And, you know, some of the stories can only be told with the snow on the ground. So when I'm teaching in the winter, I have different stories than I teach in the summer because, you know, there's just protocol around telling stories as well and who I got them from as well, who told me the stories originally. So yeah, there's a lot to actually talk about with porcupines and porcupine ecology and just understanding, you know, their place in the world and Roadkill porcupines are a primary source for sure. But traditionally, we actually harvest porcupine quills with a blanket, uh, with a wool blanket. So you go out into the woods and you find yourself a porcupine. It's much easier with two people to do it. I've done it before. And you find yourself a porcupine. You could do it with a sweater too. But you flip the blanket over top of them and you just give them a quick toss. And each person holds one end of the blanket and you just give them a little bit of a toss. And they get a little, put this like, purring vibrating sound out almost like they're hissing and vibrating so they like shake and then they drop all their quills into the blanket and then you just release them and he just kind of makes his angry little noises and goes off into the bush and then you just sit there and pick the quills out of the blanket so beads though not as strenuous to find them these days i imagine no no and one of the things that i talk about in the beadwork classes that i do is the transition from the traditional land-based arts that were already here that allowed us to already have the skills to adapt beadwork very quickly to the designs that existed here on Turtle Island post-contact. We see in very early beadwork patterns, we see very close replications of what we had already been seeing in quill work designs that existed pre-contact and the transition to a much more readily available and mass-producible product like a bead really changed the whole face of what Indigenous art looks like, especially in the North and for, you know, the Cree and the Anishinaabe and Métis people and, you know, the development of what we consider to be Métis art today. And that whole style, that whole those design motifs and everything came from very old, rudimentary, basic designs. But the introduction of beads really allowed us to explore that. And then, you know, learning embroidery techniques from residential schools and the tutelage of nuns and try to teach marketable skills to Métis and Indigenous women. So that's kind of that burgeoning trade in trying to teach them a marketable skill really began to allow us to develop this flower beadwork style. And so if I'm in, let's say, Calgary or Vancouver or Victoria, and I walk into a Michaels and see the bead section, could those work as traditional Métis bead artwork? Absolutely. I mean, you could use whatever beads you want, whatever works for you. There's a huge size difference between, you know, like say a 15, 15.0 bead, which is extremely tiny. They're actually too small for me to work with at this point. And you can go all the way up to almost like a pony size bead. So they're, you know, like a five millimeter to an eight millimeter bead. But with the glass beads, I usually use something around in the 10, 11 size. So you're going to find those beads like pretty readily available at a Michaels or or any of like the, the big bead stores, craft stores. Like they're going to be, you know, certain brands are going to be a little bit more consistent. So you're going to have a little bit less loss. So, you know, if you pay a few bucks more for a hank of really nice beads, you're going to be able to use more of them than, say, you know, a craft store, dollar store version, which they're all going to be a little bit of different sizes and and shapes. Are there any maybe Métis bead creators that we should be promoting or acknowledging or... um... Oh, bead manufacturers? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know of any 
bead manufacturers really in North America anymore. Most of them that I, most of the beads that I buy are actually from the Czech Republic, who have a very long and storied history of making beads. They've been making beads for thousands of years. And so the Czech Republic, it really has a monopoly on making seed beads. Yeah. Okay. That's great to know. So if you were to go to say like a, like a store and see different maybe types of beadwork, could you distinguish between who made that possibly or their traditional or their style of what that beadwork looks like, whether it's beadwork on clothing or kind of jewelry like earrings, or is it as the bead world of art kind of mishmashed enough that it's hard to tell? Well, I think that that's, that's a very simple question. And it's also a very mm. complex question because when I see something that's very culturally identifiable, Yes, you can tell that somebody has had training, they've had a grounding, they've either had like familial line of beadwork or they've had a community around them that's really helped them to establish that style within their cultural inheritance. But the thing about the internet and the thing about Instagram and Facebook and and us sharing stuff so widely is that attributions get lost really easily. So people can collect photos and images and make Pinterest boards and all this stuff. And unfortunately, it really leads to what we see in all Indigenous arts now is this pan-Indigeneity that kind of like runs rampant. And it's not always nefarious. It's not always, you know, people taking advantage or anything. It's people actually like going out and trying to connect with their roots and think, you know, knowing that they have beadwork in their background, they have beadwork in their communities, they have beadwork in their lineage, but they don't really know how to approach it. So they're learning stuff online. And sometimes that information is a little bit, like I said, photos aren't always attributed to what they're actually from. Like we all know that from going to a museum, you see beautiful, absolutely incredible embroidered Métis gauntlets and you know exactly where they're from. You can tell the region that they're from. You can tell which fort they were from. You know, somebody as expert as like Gregory Schofield can look at any kind of Métis beadwork and embroidery and tell you like within 10 years when it was made from the early 1800s and the colors that were used, he knows all about the beads. He probably could tell you which families they came from based on the designs. But in museums, we'll see them attributed to, you know, Fox or Cree, or there's all these different names actually placed on my TV work in particular, right? And that's a whole other topic, which I can talk about a little bit more. But yeah, as far as beadwork goes, yeah, the beadwork world, I think it's important for us to kind of rein it in a little bit and people who are teaching, making it really clear that like when you are teaching something that's not culturally specific, the people who are learning those things need to be really clear about what they're making is not culturally specific. You could be a Métis artisan and be doing beadwork and it's not necessarily Métis beadwork. And I know that that's something that I actually talk about a lot with my work because I do have that question brought to me a lot because what I do is not necessarily very traditional all the time. And one of those reasons is because I was not taught traditional, traditional beadwork from my family. My mother did loom work and the other members of my family stitched moccasins and did like a very woodland style, like a much more Anishinaabe style of beadwork, but it's not very specifically Métis because we're from Northern Ontario, from Thunder Bay. And there's a lot of that real woodlands influence that's not necessarily specifically Métis. And I wanted to express the fact I wasn't just exclusively Métis. I want to express the fact that I am all these other things. I'm Sami and German and Scandinavian. It's really important for me to talk about like using traditional two-needle beadwork as a language to express all of this other vocabulary that I have in my lexicon. Like I've got this whole box of tools, but this is how I express my roots is through beadwork. And so it's not always going to be traditional Métis beadwork, but that doesn't necessarily 
mean that it's not because I am Métis. So it becomes a little bit ambiguous in the wider work community. But I think as long as people are really clear about what they're doing and how they're representing themselves, I think that that's pretty much all we can do at this point, right? Have you had the chance to watch Rutherford Falls that stars Andy from The Office? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of this and I've not seen it. The writers are all indigenous and they actually have uh, one of the characters runs a casino and his daughter got really into beadwork but makes beadwork, but like really kind of call it modern types of beadwork. So makes these like beautiful necklaces, but with like Pokemon characters and then gives them away to her friends. And the father's trying to get her to create a business out of it. But he's just really proud to see that his daughter has adopted beadwork, but is doing it in kind of a new modern way. And it's just that wrestle between the father who likes the traditional, you know, beadwork, but yet Mm -hmm. his daughter has embraced this new style and, and kind of mixed the two worlds. I really love that. I really love seeing that. There's so many amazing bead workers out there that I just, you know, so much pop culture stuff. And I think that it can only enrich the beadwork community. But like I said, like we just, when it's very obviously a pop culture reference, it's something separate, right? Of course. But I think that it is just really important, like, especially with the Métis beadwork, which is something, like I said, I don't do a lot of because that's not actually where my training is but I do use those traditional like woodland beadwork techniques. But there are plenty of beadworkers out there who are doing brick stitch and peyote stitch and these like Pueblo Indian styles of beadwork that are very identifiable as a technique that is not necessarily from Canada. And they are technically still Métis beadworkers. Of course they are. They are, they're Métis and they're doing beadwork. But there is a differentiation between that and traditional Métis and woodlands work. So I think it's just important to have that conversation like without bias and without derision. But I think those conversations can only strengthen the beadwork community by being honest and yeah, having transparent conversations about what is considered traditional and what is not. That's how you refine and cultivate tradition. And I think it's even how we identify ourselves. You know, when you win Absolutely. a lot of people who have amazing, beautiful introductions that I'm always quite jealous of because they've articulated them so clearly of explaining, you know, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. This is where my parents, you know, this is my parents' lineage. Like, it's quite beautiful that people have done that. So it's almost the, you know, the art you create, this is where it came from. This is its history. Absolutely. We've heard the term traditional land-based arts and traditional land-based arts practices. What does that term mean to you in the work that you do and the style of art that you teach? Well, I have to say right off the bat, traditional land-based practices and land-based arts are pretty much the fundamental core of what I do at Indigenous Nouveau because I don't believe that you can share anything without a teaching. It's part of your responsibility as, as a practitioner of traditional arts to share your own experience and to share knowledge about preservation of those skills. But I can only speak to my own teachings, my own familial practices and the things that I've adopted through knowledge seeking and learning and classes that I myself have taken. So for me, when we talk about land-based practices, which can be anything from hunting to fishing to, to art, pretty much any traditional practice that reinforces relationships between us, the people, and the land. And when it comes to something like porcupine quill work or beadwork and using, you know, traditionally smoked and tanned hides, like the connection is really quite obvious. You can make the decision between using factory tanned leather or traditionally produced moose hide that your friend tanned and smoked from her father who shot the moose. There's a real clean line there between what is an indigenous product and what's not an indigenous product. 
even though, you know, the commercially tanned hide might be from indigenous hunters and the best way to mass produce it is to take it to a tannery. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's about trying to, at every step of the process, reinforce its connection with the land. So at any given point, making sure that you are actually paying attention and making the effort to choose the most ethical option, the most indigenous produced option, and the most ecologically sound option. When it comes to land-based practices, I even, like I said, have adopted that with the production of my fabric because I want to make sure that people who are making ribbon skirts can make something that's slightly closer to a more genuinely indigenous product because it was actually made here from plants that were grown in North America and printed here with like ecological inks and and we're not outsourcing to another country and it's about you know really taking into consideration the ecological footprint whether that's shipping things from overseas or whether that's involving you know people who who have or do not have respect for indigenous practices in their own businesses and their own business ethics so land-based practices when it comes to business like it's not really that hard to try to to incorporate that relationship between us and the land for when we're really talking about land-based practices themselves. I mean, again, the first things that come to mind for me are are going out and producing very authentic, unquestionably authentic materials. So things like moose hide and deer hides and porcupine quills and things like that are seen just as products themselves. You know, it's not just something that you can buy and you can sell. It's something that has inherent value, that has a respect that's owed to it. And at every stage of like a piece of quill work, like paying homage to that, like you have something in your hand that came from an animal and like constantly reinforcing that for yourself, that relationship between you, the user of that product and our relationship with the land. I think that that's, that's essential at every stage. So when you think of Métis specific land-based practices, What's special about that? And what does that mean to you? Well, I think that it's absolutely essential to Métis identity. And in in the age that we're in now with this beautiful reclamation, this invigorating, bright and vibrant resurgence of Métis culture, especially in young people and craftspeople and being interested in land-based practices, being interested in, in traditional arts and hunting and fishing and land reclamation. It's such a huge core part of our identity. And this is something that I almost kind of touched on before, but the attribution of a lot of our own arts, our beadwork and our quill work and things in museums that haven't been actually given the credit as being Métis pieces, that in and of itself is a real indicator of, of the struggle that Métis people have gone through to reclaim an identity that, you know, when we were disenfranchised voluntarily or against our will. We lost that connection. We severed a lot of connections between our traditional practices and the lives that we were living. And we did that for our safety. We did that to avoid road allowance living. We did that to avoid racism. We did that to avoid stigma. And you know that's something that my own family went through pretty harshly. And that denial of our indigenous identity. And so land-based practices are absolutely essential for reclaiming our identities, for reclaiming relationships with the other Indigenous communities that our grandfathers and grandmothers were a part of, because they weren't separate. 
they weren't different people. They lived together. And this is something that I actually really talk about a lot with my newest project, the Ribbon Skirt Project, which I'll talk about a little bit more in full. But one of the things that I'm very, very strong about telling people on a path to reclamation and whether that's through beadwork or community or whether that's through going to sweat lodge or whether that's learning your language or whether that you know whether that's just going to a rendezvous and and watching and throwing axes and doing archery and just being part of it and going into a dance and jigging that we represent a very unique facet of indigenous culture where we walk a very interesting line we have a foot in both worlds we speak both languages And that affords us a very privileged position as mediators between settlers and indigenous people, because we have experiences in these two, these two different worlds. And on the road to reclamation of your identity and like really investigating your roots, one of the things that comes up a lot is for a lot of people, especially women, I think a lot of the women that I've connected with, because it's mostly been women in my beadwork circles and quillwork circles, um, something that we talk about a lot is imposter syndrome. And I like to just remind people that being half of something doesn't make you less than. It makes you twice as much. You are bringing twice as much back to your community. You are part of two worlds. You are bringing knowledge and inheritance and culture from two different places. And why wouldn't that make you twice as much? And so us having suffered such a strong cultural loss of a lot of our Indigenous roots and practices to being disabused of our rich indigenous culture through, you know, the systematic disenfranchisement of our people, we begin to question that. We begin to question our value. And I think that the real way forward is accepting all of your parts and accepting yourself as a whole and not looking at yourself as less than because you have a certain percentage of indigenous blood, but because you belong to this rich and amazing, vibrant community of this like very identifiable and strong and unique lineage, I don't think that anybody should be made to feel less than because of a disconnect. I think that everybody should be welcomed to, you know, everybody's going to have completely different traditions too, right? Of course, like some of us are very closely connected to the Indigenous communities that our grandmothers came from. And some of us, you know, came from lineages that never spent any time with Indigenous communities. So we're all going to have different familial traditions. But I think it's really important for all of us to go on that search and figure out what's actually appropriate for each person individually, because it is so diverse. There's such a such an incredible difference tradition-wise from, you know, Quebec all the way to British Columbia. We're going to have influences from so many Indigenous groups and different accents, as it were, you know. So that's something I talk a lot about in the Ribbon Skirt Project is it's about investigation and you can't, you can't have that sense of wholeness without accepting all parts of yourself equally or valuing one more than the other. That's just not a healthy way to go about it. It's very colonist, very colonist view, right? We talk about that a lot in the Métis community about bug quantum and how disfiguring that can be to yourself, your sense of self and your self-worth and your identity. It's amazing. You've articulated it so well. It's beautiful. Thank you. So you mentioned Ribbon Skirt Project. Yes. The Ribbon Skirt Project. Tell us about what this is and what it means. I'm very excited to start talking about this because I finally unveiled it. I recently received an arts grant, an arts culture grant through Métis Nation British Columbia to start off this project 
And I originally thought it was just going to be, you know, me providing a little bit of teachings, collecting teachings and, and talking to other, talking to elders and other ribbon skirt makers to kind of compile a PDF to teach people how to make ribbon skirts. But through the funding that I was able to get through MNBC, I actually built an entire website that has begun to evolve into something a lot larger than I thought it was going to be. So the basis of the project is I am going to create 100 ribbon skirts for Métis individuals in British Columbia, and they're going to be fully funded by Métis Nation British Columbia. And I am providing those with online classes as well. So we're going to do a PDF. I've already written a PDF and each person gets instructional for the ribbon skirts. Then they get invited and we're all going to do like a ribbon skirt making circle. So we're going to do them in sets of like 25 students per class. Pretty exciting. And we're really, for the first hundred skirts, we're really trying to get people who are really in need of this. So I have posted on my Instagram and on my Facebook, and I will give you all the URLs and everything at the end of this, but I am taking nominations for the ribbon skirt slots for the first 100 of them, because we really want to go in like into the smaller communities and charter communities for people who are really in need of connection, who are isolated because of COVID-19, who are isolated because of disability or geography or people who are not financially in a position where they've been able to make their own regalia or buy their own regalia. And so I am providing all of the fabric, all of my own Indigenous beadwork patterns. So all of the fabric actually comes from my company, Indigenous Nouveau, and we're providing these 100 kits to members of the community. And That's so incredible. And, and those that, again, those that don't know what a ribbon skirt is, maybe catch us up on that. What is that? Okay. So this is a very, very large topic. I can give you a very brief description of what they are, but the website itself, actually, if you want to go and visit the website, it is www.theribbonskirtproject.ca. And we'll put links, we'll put all the links in the show notes for sure. Yeah. That's great. And there's also a Facebook and an Instagram, but I actually on the website have done basically a dissertation with the amount of research that I had done for this project, because it was really important for me to establish a historical context for the ribbon skirt existing in Métis culture. So one of the the larger parts of this project was actually providing education to the individuals in the classes to understand where the ribbon skirt came from originally and the way that the Métis had an influence on the development of what we call the modern ribbon skirt, because through antiquity, what were considered ribbon skirts are actually very different than their modern sisters. So we have a very long and storied tradition of sacred skirts through, I mean, almost all indigenous groups across Turtle Island, almost all nations have different traditions around the skirts. And again, I will only speak about my own knowledge, my own study and my own research and my own stories and my own experiences growing up and being a teenager and being introduced to ribbon skirts are also on the on the website. But the adaptation of the traditional buckskin skirts and dresses and ceremonial dresses and tea dresses of the plains and the woodlands and that architecture that already existed here with the sacred and ceremonial dresses and how that merged with how that merged with European materials and European sensibilities and, and European clothing culture when it arrived. And there's quite an extensive history section actually on the website talking about right from the beginning of what evidence we have, pictorial and uh, anecdotal evidence for Métis women and Indigenous women, our Indigenous grandmothers, wearing their traditional skirts and adapting those designs with, you know, 
these modern fabrics, wools and, and silk and gingham and, and all of these different things that came from overseas. And then with the introduction of ribbons and lace as trade goods and the ribbon work that actually evolved from that and the Menomine and the Fox and the Anishinaabe were particularly proficient at these really beautiful folded geometric ribbon designs. And so... When we talk about, again, with the history page on the website, I do talk about this too, that when we're talking about the Métis in a historical context that far back, we're not talking about the Métis as the modern Métis nation that we consider ourselves to be when we found autonomy as a nation. We're talking about the lowercase Métis. We're talking about people of mixed Indigenous and European descent, Métis in the very literal sense of being mixed people, country-born daughters, and country-born daughters and sons. Through my own research, actually, I had a pretty fun time reading, again, with the amount of research that I've done on this project, I was reading ledgers from the Hudson's Bay from the early 1800s from Fort Albany. And I came across the actual records of imports of ribbon to the fort at Fort Albany between 1805 and 1807, which coincidentally is actually when my great, 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 great great-grandfather was the chief factor at Fort Albany for the Hudson's Bay Company, um, who was John Hodgson. And he um, is the the ancestor of a large group of Métis people because he then married a woman of the land named Mary and had, well, an illustrious six sons and many daughters. And so there are a lot of different Métis lineages that come out of that marriage. And then while my ancestor was chief factor at the time, we have these records of actual ribbon imports and the men that were living at the fort who were buying these ribbons for their wives and their daughters. And so I went and did all this genealogical research on each individual person, each man that was living at the fort at the time. And each one of them married a woman of the land or had married a Métis woman. And so we actually have material, these ribbons being brought in for Métis people to adorn their clothing at that time. And it was such an interesting investigation for myself into my own personal family culture. This, These were members of my family and there were two men on the list who married children of that chief factor and his wife, Mary, who were one of my ancestors. So these were like my great, 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 great uncles who were buying ribbon for their Métis daughters and their Cree wives. And it was hundreds and hundreds of meters of ribbon over the course of a few years. Like it was, it was 357 total meters between five guys. That's a huge amount of ribbon to be buying for for sewing projects within the home. So this whole project for me was was really about going back as far as we could to establish, like I said, a historical context for the production of ribbon-adorned clothing in a traditional context, but within the forts and everything. So I actually found this, this actual historical information that backed up my hypothesis. Amazing. So this year we can expect to see a hundred new skirts enter yes. the, the fashion. Enter the community, uh, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. So that but that whole history that I've just been talking about now, that is all part of the course that I'm putting together. Like everybody gets this informational packet. And then all of the photos that I've compiled from the Glenbow Museum and the University of Calgary with all of this actual historical context for Métis women wearing ribbon skirts all the way from 1800 to the historical photos stop 
around the the centennial 1967 are kind of the last historical photos that I've been finding. Yeah. And then I talk about the ribbon skirt in contemporary Métis culture, in modern Métis culture. But yeah, this is all part of it. It's not It's not just about making a ribbon skirt. It's not just about learning how to do a zigzag stitch and put in an elastic. It's really about having a real cultural context to understand where that exists for us. You know, this, this is us deciding that we aren't going to subscribe to this pan-Indigeneity of just the idea that all Indigenous people wear a ribbon skirt or or that all Indigenous people do a particular kind of beadwork. But I really wanted to have like a grounding in, like I said, a historical context for Métis women and, and individuals who do wear ribbon skirts to know where it comes from. And I love the conversations that'll spark. We talk about, you know, it's a conversation piece, like something we put in our house, but the clothes we wear can often be conversation starters. So for someone to ask about the skirt and then be able to give that context is pretty beautiful. Oh, totally. Yes, absolutely. And that's it's one of the reasons that I actually started making ribbon aprons. I've been making ribbon aprons for a couple of years now and it was really about the fact that ribbon skirts had been kind of relegated to being such a ceremonial and sacred piece of clothing that it for such a long time that it wasn't something that was really in our everyday wear in our everyday life. Like now we see them as being as being pretty prominent in Indigenous culture and in Métis culture, but I didn't see a lot of that. And I wanted people to have the ribbon skirt in the home and bring that ceremonial into their daily life. So I started making ribbon aprons with my fabric and putting ribbons on them so people could wear them while they were cooking for their families and doing, you know, practicing land-based practices and cooking and canning and doing preserves and wearing their ribbon skirt as an apron, like in the home and bringing that into their, their daily life, you know, that reinforcement. It's incredible. It's incredible. So speaking to, and, and this is exactly who you're, you know, those that are maybe new to discovering their Métis heritage and those that have known they've been Métis a long time, maybe you want to say two different things to this two different groups of people that are listening right now, but what's maybe like a first step for those that have yet to try beading, try quill work, try making a skirt, like what, what's the kind of a first step they can do to kind of reconnect to that history, to that heritage? Well. Again, this is a very large question. This is a very big question. Give me, give me like a baby step. What's like a baby for someone that's never done anything? What, where's the first place they should go? Maybe even like, what could they do as a first step to be like, I want to try this? Well, I think that, I think that number one, pursuing traditional arts and land-based practices is absolutely an incredible way to start to reconnect to your community. Um, there are dozens of beadwork and quill work classes going on across this province on a weekly basis. And I encourage everybody to really try to spend more time reconnecting with their individual nation that they belong to. Like that's really the core of, of the strength of the Métis nation is our individual communities, our charter communities, and our actual individual people that we see on a daily basis and meeting the elders in your circle, like actually asking who your elders are. I know so many Métis people who don't even know who the elders are in their actual nation. And so it's really important to like take the first step to actively identify yourself as a member because that's really what being a Métis in this province is a, a lot of it is about is about self-identification and it's about you taking that first step in identifying yourself as a person of Métis heritage, identifying yourself within your community and being active within your community. Those are the prerequisites for for belonging to the Métis nation. And um, I love that description. I love it. It's, and, and those, that's really what it's about. Yeah. Those that have yet to meet an elder and to understand the importance 
of elders. And those that maybe know this reference, but like, like if you look at Star Wars, where there's like the Jedi masters and there's Padawans, right? The only way to pass on the real learning of the Jedi abilities was through meeting a Jedi master who could pass it on and teach and pass down the stories and the legends. And, and, and the wild thing is the Padawans were already Jedis. They just didn't know how to pull it out of themselves. They had the midichlorians in their blood. Yes, right? Totally. Okay. Is that fairly comparable? I think so to a certain extent, especially when we're talking about things like stories and protocol, like things that are yeah. really necessary to yes. preserve as they are, because those are the things that make traditions what they are, yes. is protocol, is following those rules. And it took me a while to really understand that because I was very separated from a lot of my family culture. And so I had to do a lot of my own self-investigation, my own and my own pursuit. I had to teach myself a lot of things because I didn't have a lot of people around me. And so as an adult, I made the effort to go. And after having beaded for 20 years in some styles, going out and actually like talking to people and realizing that things that I had been doing wrong for years were actually huge faux pas culturally, you know, like, and especially when it came to teaching, like I, when I started to teach beadwork, and I didn't teach it in being a position of, of a knowledge keeper or anything like that, but what I would have been doing had I not pursued that aspect of it, had I not pursued elders, had I not talked to people, had I not gotten permission culturally from others to be able to teach, had I not learned stories, had I not learned protocol around teaching and, and the ceremony around it and the ritual around it, it would have been hollow. And I would have been feeding into this kind of idea of pan-indigeneity and just the idea of this free-for-all of like learning whatever you want and then applying whatever name you want to it. And so it's really important that you reach out to members of your community who are renowned for certain things, who have that cultural knowledge. Like that's, that's really the basis of cultural preservation is making sure that you're asking the right people. And I'm still learning every single day. Like I've consulted like a dozen separate elders for this ribbon skirt project. And all of them have completely different ideas from saying that Métis people don't wear ribbon skirts to all the way to the other side to being like, no, the ribbon skirt is a Métis invention. So like there is such a huge gamut to run. Like the, the myriad of different experiences within the Métis community is really astounding because we do come from such disparate parts of the country with different influences culturally. And, and they don't nullify each other too. Like one, one person uh, telling their cultural story, their familial story doesn't negate somebody else's story. And no. so that's why this project became so large is because I really wanted to include as much as I could to give a spectrum for people to understand their own place in Métis culture. So yeah, consulting your elders, being part of your community, being active in your community, asking how you can volunteer for things like rendezvous, yeah. you know, ask when their cultural events going to happen, asking, and you know, as individual nations get funding, you know, going to some of the meetings, the executive meetings, putting forward propositions for, you know, maybe we should look at allocating some funds to bring in a bead worker to teach us these things or bringing in a quill worker, or is there somebody in the community that we can reach out to? Is there an elder here who has stories they can tell? Yeah. You know, like be active in your community. This is about you, your identification with yourself. Like you have to ask these questions. It's a citizenry. We belong to a community of citizens. Like you have to be an advocate for your own culture. That's the most important part, I think, for me is reconnecting on like a like a smaller level, on a community level that you already belong to. And to sum it up, I don't just ask what they can do for you, your community, but what can no. you do for your community? That's what I think no. is so cool. Yeah. How can you Absolutely, get involved? Yeah. How can you can be a part of it? Like, and that's, yeah. you know, 
when we do talk about land-based practices, it's about asserting your rights. It's about you self-identifying, but also identifying with what you want to see in your community. Like you really have to do that deep dive and, and doing things like, you know, signing up for the harvester card and exercising your section 35 rights, you know, your harvesting rights as an indigenous person, like go on that website and you can do it without a hunting license. Like you can do it without hunting, sign up for your harvest card, do the harvester survey. Like I think it's open still until June. It's really important to do that because like you're identifying yourself as an active member of your community who's interested in these cultural practices, who's interested in land-based practices. You, you know, you're actively participating. And it's not just about like getting those numbers up. It's about making sure that there's funding in the future for these things. Yeah. So, you know, advocating for yourself and what you want for your community. It's simple things like that. But yeah, everybody go and sign up for your harvest card because we do want to get those numbers up so that we can, you know, expand those section 35 rights as well. I love it. I love it. I got to say, we need to bring you back for part two. I, I would love oh, that because we it. have so much more to talk about. This has been oh, amazing. I can go on for... <laughs> Thank you great, for joining us. Time. Yeah. So we'll have you back again. I think there's so much more to talk about, especially when it comes to... There's two questions I want to ask you about next time. How to build better relationships with First Nation land stewards in BC and land preservation from a Métis perspective. So we're going to talk about that next time. Excellent. You've been amazing. This has been an incredible episode. We're going to put all the notes in the show notes here. Uh, thank you again for being here this week. Awesome. Marcy, Darian, like I've had an amazing time. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for everyone for joining us. And we'll see you next time on the show. This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast. I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to Métis Nation BC for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis news at metispodcastseries.ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you, Marcy, for listening. <laughs>